In this Summer Essential series, we're discussing some of the things that are foundational to our faith, some of the things that are just key ingredients to following Jesus. So you'll remember, we've talked about things like salvation, kind of important, right? We've talked about worship, uh, serving other people. Heidi and Chelsea talked about Bible study. Kyle covered prayer and its importance in the life of a Christian. Next week, we're going to be talking about baptism because we've got our baptism in the bow service coming up on uh, August the 8th, I believe. And so we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about baptism next week. If you've already been baptized, don't skip church, okay? You're going to get a lot out of that message, I promise. Today, what I want to do is I want to point out to you that although these are all foundational things for Christians to do, they're not elementary things, okay? These are first things, but they're not basic things. When we start talking about serving other people, that's not always simple, you guys. Sometimes it's quite difficult to serve other people. When we talk about worship and what it is and what it isn't, it's, it's, it's one of those first things that we might talk about, but that doesn't mean we always get it right. And so just because we're talking about essential things, particularly if you've been following Jesus for a long time, I don't want you to think, oh, well, I'm past this. No, none of us are past this. We all need milk and meat from the word every so often. Now, today, I want to talk to you about another essential practice in our faith. And I have to tell you, this one is just as important as everything else that we've talked about so far, but it's going to be harder. (laughs) Okay. This is one of the most difficult things for us to put into practice as followers of Jesus. Even if you've never thought about it in this context before, I guarantee you, you have struggled with this before. I have struggled with this before. What I want to challenge you to do this morning is to forgive anyone who has wronged you. Or to put it a little bit differently, to love people who may not deserve it. Now, some of you guys just checked out. You're like, nope, 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 nope. I was prepared to listen to you talk about anything, Dan, but not that. Because I know exactly who the Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind, and I am not ready to think about them today. Her, him, them, nope. And so you're going to be tempted to check out. Can I just say to you, there's a reason you're in the room this morning. And there's a reason that immediately you bristled when I talked about forgiveness. It's because the Holy Spirit really wants to do a freeing, a transformative work in you. Now, please understand, you're going to find out in this message, I am not standing up here saying, I'm good at this, you guys. (laughs) I'm not. I struggle with it. I've got to work at this just like absolutely everybody does, forgiving those who've wronged you, loving those who do not deserve it. How many of you guys know that forgiveness is an essential part of our faith? Like, honestly, it might be the most foundational part of our faith if you think about it, because the entire Christian faith revolves around the idea that sins can be forgiven, that wrongs can be undone, that relationships that have been divided and separated can be healed through grace and mercy. So when we talk about summer essentials, we dare not leave out forgiveness. We dare not leave out loving our enemies or people who may not deserve it. A Christian who won't forgive is a little bit like a vegan who won't quit eating meat. Are you with me? If you've ever met a vegan and then you went out to lunch with them and they ordered a steak, you'd be like, I'm not sure you know what vegan means based on what I'm seeing here. And listen to me now, a Christian who won't forgive is the same way. It's no different. Those two things are incompatible. You cannot have Jesus and unforgiveness because Jesus is forgiveness personified. He's love for people who don't deserve it. 
So I want to illustrate this idea of loving people who don't deserve it from the story of one of the most notorious villains of the Bible, like one of the bad guys, one of the worst. Even if you're not a Bible person, you've heard of him before. His name is Judas Iscariot. He's also known as the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And uh, although he's a fascinating case study, guys, his, his story is so very, very interesting. Um, what I want you to understand is like the, the, the important part, the interesting, the most interesting part of his story is not the fact that he was a bad guy and he betrayed Jesus and all that. We're going to talk about that. But the most interesting part of Judas's story is how Jesus responded to Judas. It's not really about what Judas did. It's about how Jesus reacted to what Judas did. And his reaction, the way that Jesus treated Judas in the Gospels is going to be so helpful, so important for us to pay attention if we call ourselves followers of Christ. So let's talk a little bit about Judas this morning. Anybody got a Judas in your life? had a Judas. Don't point. That's rude. I saw some wives and she, no, don't do that. Okay. Yes. We've all got these people that are hard to love. People who don't deserve to be loved. People who maybe we need to forgive because of the way that they treated us either intentionally or subconsciously. And boy, we really need to address this and deal with it. So let's go to John chapter number 13. And in this story, this interaction between Jesus and Judas, the guy who betrays him, we're going to see how God wants us to treat people that treat us wrong. John chapter number 13, we'll just read. We're going to work our way through this uh, section of scripture here. And verse number one, it's here on the screen for you. The Bible says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and to return to his father. This is literally like hours before he's going to be crucified. This is the very, very end of his life. He's gathered with the disciples for this holiday celebration called the Passover. This eventually becomes what we call in Christian tradition, the Last Supper. We're at the Last Supper here. The scripture says, uh, where am I at? Here we go. <laughs> he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So when it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Okay. I want to pause here, and I, we, we are introduced to a couple of things. As I mentioned, this is the last supper, last few hours of Jesus' life, and then we're told about this particular disciple, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who had been prompted by the devil. Um, who is this uh, Judas guy, this betrayer, okay? If you're familiar with the Bible, then you know he is the guy who betrayed Jesus, turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities that eventually led to his death. Just a couple of hours after this dinner that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, Judas is going to lead a contingent of Roman guards to Christ. He's going to kiss Jesus on the cheek as a way of identifying him and saying, this is the guy that you're supposed to be arresting. The Romans are going to put him in, in shackles and they're going to lead him away to his execution. I mean, it's, it's this theme that's kind of been riffed on throughout history. Like it's so crazy that he betrays the savior, the son of God with a kiss. This symbol, this sign of affection gets turned into a sign of treachery, right? By Jesus. Who is this cat? And why the heck would Jesus choose him as one of the 12? Why in the world would Jesus choose the betrayer to be a part of the inner circle? Well, I've got some interesting info here about Judas, just so you know a little about, about who this guy is. But once more, I just want to say to you, what's gonna, the good part of this is to come, okay? So his name was Judas Iscariot. And that word or that name, Iscariot, it literally just means from the village or the region of Cariot, all right? So it just means he was Judas from this town, okay? That's really it. We're told that he is the son of Simon Iscariot. His dad's name was Simon. 
And that's it. Like the Bible doesn't tell us any more biographical information about this guy. That is literally all we know about him. We know his dad's name and we know the village that he came from. I've got so many questions. Was he tall? Was he short? I don't know. Was he funny and like charismatic or was he like really serious and intense? I don't know. Was he married? Some of the disciples were married. Did you know that? They were. And many of them were not. Did he like boba tea? The Bible doesn't tell us any of these important details about this guy named Judas. It simply tells us his name and a little bit about his family. We're also told, of course, that he's one of the 12 apostles. He was chosen by Jesus to be this, uh, a part of this inner circle of 12 that followed him around. Now, there's some interesting uh, things to note here. First, Judas was one of the final apostles chosen. We don't know the exact order, but we have a sense of who was called earlier and who was called later. And Judas was chosen very much towards the end. If you're watching through the Chosen series right now, the TV show, we're still waiting on Judas, aren't we? Okay, he hasn't shown up quite yet. Um, We are also told, or we note in the scriptures, that there is very little of Judas' presence recorded. Like, if you really pay attention to it, there are some disciples that get a lot of play. You know what I mean? Peter and James and John, they're always talking, they're always doing, they're always up front with Jesus. And then there are other apostles and you're like, Bartholomew, who in the world is that dude? We never hear anything about him. And Judas is one of these guys that shades more towards that end of the spectrum. We have no recordings in the gospel stories of Judas preaching or working miracles. None. He's never mentioned in any of those episodes in which people are healed or delivered from demonic possession or anything like that. There are only a couple of times in the entire Gospels that Judas even speaks, and he only talks about one thing. Anybody know what it is? Money. That's all he talks about. Kind of interesting because we're told that Judas was the treasurer of the apostles group. You know, Jesus' ministry was funded by the donations of people. Like when we ask you to give here at Connect, it's not because I'm trying to get rich. We're just following the example of our Savior. He was funded by generous people like you who made it possible for him to travel around and do ministry. And Judas was the guy in the group who was assigned to keep track of the money day to day. Now, the apostle John tells us something very fascinating in John chapter number 12. He tells us that they discovered later that Judas had been stealing from the money account this whole time. He had been ripping off Jesus during his life. So it's this really interesting kind of, you get a picture of him that he's a part of the group, but not really a part of the group. He certainly doesn't have the heart and the focus of Jesus or the rest of the disciples. Now, he's most famous because he betrayed Jesus to the Roman authorities. Famously, he was paid 30 pieces of silver, right? That was the amount of money that he received for, for uh, stabbing Jesus in the back, so to speak. It's hard for us to know the value of, of these coins, okay? If we look at just like the, the commodity value of 30 silver coins, like, you know, it had a certain percentage of silver inside of a little coin like this. And if we were to take it today and bring it to a, um, you know, a, a, a pawn shop or a coin dealer or something like that, uh, it would be about $250 worth of silver in modern terms. It's like, he betrayed the savior for the price of Apple AirPods. You know what I'm saying? Like this was not really a huge amount of money, at least to us. It's kind of a weird way to think about it like that. Now, more appropriately, what we need to consider is that uh, one silver coin was about one day's wages for the average worker in the Roman Empire. So if you worked a day as a day laborer or, you know, whatever, in an office, IT, whatever, um, you would get paid one silver coin. So 30 silver coins on a six-day work week is five weeks worth of salary. 
So if we translate that into modern terms, Judas betrayed Jesus for like five grand. It's like not an insignificant amount of money, but it's not exactly a life-changing amount of money, is it? Like if you got five grand, you'd be happy, but you wouldn't be like, I'm set, baby. No, that would not work, okay? But that's the amount of money uh, in his terms that, that he received. Now, I think this gives us a really interesting clue about why Judas betrayed Jesus. Because typically, it's like, oh, it was all about the money. He loved, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And this is him. This is personified, okay? But the thing is here, A, um, it wasn't a huge amount of money. Like, it really wasn't all that much. But secondly, it's been suggested that Judas wasn't really evil or greedy. He was just impatient, okay? See, there was an idea in the first century that when the Messiah came, he was going to either be a military leader or he was going to be a politician. The Israelites had been enslaved. They had been conquered by the Romans a couple of hundred years before, and they had been occupied by this foreign government for a long time. And they kept waiting and thinking, okay, if the Messiah comes during our lifetime, he's going to show up. He's going to throw off these Gentile rulers. And finally, God is going to restore Israel to its own people. So the expectation for many Jews, perhaps even Judas Iscariot, was that the Messiah was going to come, he was going to lead a war or a revolt of some way, and he was going to set the Jewish people free. But if you pay attention in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly avoiding picking fights with the Romans. Now, he loves picking fights with the religious people, but he really avoids picking fights with the Romans as much as he possibly can. And so it's been suggested, and I think there's a lot of merit to this, that perhaps Judas was simply trying to force Jesus' hand. He's like, no, I think you're the Messiah. I think you are. And I know that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to lead us in revolt, and we're going to be established as our own nation again, and you're kind of dragging your heels here. So why don't I just push fast forward a little bit? Because if I betray you, then you're going to have to like rip open your tunic and you're like, surprise, it's the son of God. And you're going to lead us all to victory. Like it, there is very much, I'm reading a little bit into the scripture here, but I believe there's a lot of merit. Also, consider the fact that after G, uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and he realized there was no ripping open the tunic and showing the S for son of God or anything. Once he realized that Jesus was going to be, was that, maybe that joke wasn't clear the first time I made it. I'm glad I circled back to it. Um, <laughs> When he found out that Jesus was actually going to be sentenced to death, how did he respond? Do you know? He went back to the temple priest that paid him the money and he expressed his regret. He gave them back the money and they said, too late, buddy. And he was so remorseful. He had so much regret that he went out and he hung himself. He committed suicide. That was the end of Judas Iscariot. Now, I'm not getting into like, did that indicate repentance? And is he in heaven? I don't know. I'll find out one day. It's not really my concern. But my point is this. It's very easy to just paint him and say, it's all about money with Judas. But I think there was something a little bit more that was going on here. Okay, final question before we move on. Holy cow. Um, time's already getting away from me. Okay, one final question about Judas. Why would Jesus choose him? Like, did he not know that this guy was going to be a betrayer? Did he think like, you know, oh, this guy presents really well. I like this Judas character. He's good. He's going to be one of my faves. And then it turned out he was the worst guy in the group. No, I don't think so. It seems pretty clear because really early on in his ministry, like years before the events of this night that we're reading about, he is predicting one of you is going to betray me. One of you is a devil. One of you will turn me over. And everybody's like, no, no, never, never, never. So Jesus really seemed to know about it. Why then would he choose a betrayer? And the answer is, he did it willingly because Judas had a role to play in God's plan of salvation. That like God used Judas' evil and wickedness and treachery 
to bring about the crucifixion, but hey, ultimately the resurrection of the Son of God. And then the forgiveness and new life that's available to every single one of us. Like, listen, Judas is not a good guy. He's not a hero of the faith. I don't have his picture on my wall or anything, but God really used this guy to accomplish the greatest act in human history. By the way, one quick thing. For those of you guys that are skeptical, you know, you you approach the Bible from the skeptical bent and maybe your wife's a Christian, she drug you here today or something. Can I just point out to you that this is the tiniest little bit of evidence that the story of Jesus is true. Because if the story of Jesus were made up, then they wouldn't have made up a story in which one of the guys he chose betrayed him, right? It would have just been like, oh, those evil government Romans guys, you know, soldiers, and they're the ones who came after Christ. No, no, no. Like, they told the story as it actually happened, and you'll find that again and again. The disciples are not always painted in a great light, and sometimes Jesus makes a decision that we're like, I don't know if that makes any sense. Why? Because that's what actually happened. Okay, we go on here. The Bible tells us in verse number three, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had gone from God and he would return to God. So he got up from the table, he took off his outer robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around them. Anybody grossed out by other people's feet? Okay, prepare to be uncomfortable for a couple minutes. Um, this thing that Jesus does here in John chapter number 13 is very foreign to us, right? Like we don't sit around and wash one another's, one another's feet. The only time you're getting your foot washed is when you go get a mani-pedi, you know, like that's it. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. Anyway, in our world, washing somebody's feet is a bizarre, I've ne- like outside of church, you've never seen that before. But in Jesus' day, this was incredibly common. It was an act of service. It was an act of care. It was an act of hospitality. Let me quickly explain to you why. Imagine you live in the first century in the Middle East or the Mediterranean region, okay? And you're walking around and it is blisteringly hot and there is no air conditioning. There are no paved roads. Everywhere you go, you walk through the dirt. You wear sandals, open-toed shoes. So by the time you make a journey of any length whatsoever, you might be clean, but your feet are going to be disgusting. Are you with me? Amber and I were just in Rome over the past couple of weeks, and uh, she wore a pair of brand new white sneakers to walk around, like the ruins of Pompeii. She's walking around in these pearly, beautiful, perfectly white shoes. And I'm like, why are you doing that? They're going to get so dirty. And she's like, ah, they're just shoes I don't care. And so we got to experience firsthand what people in the first century were experiencing. It's like anywhere you go, your feet get dirty. Now imagine that somebody comes to your house, they're wearing open-toed shoes, and they walk in and it looks like they got like 7-Eleven feet. You know what I'm saying? It's just like gross and disgusting and dirty. And you're like, um, like seriously, in the U.S., we don't take off shoes before we go into our houses. Sometimes you come to Sway's house, we forget because that's just how deeply American we are. And so like um, people are like, you don't take off your shoes. They're like, no, we're gross. I know. Um, so imagine then if somebody did take off their shoes, but their feet were so gross You'd be like, I really don't want you walking around my house. So in the first century, every time you went over to somebody's house, it was expected that you'd have a seat near the front door. Somebody would come over with a basin of water and they would physically kneel down and they would wash your feet for you. Again, it was, a, it was an act of care and hospitality. It was a good thing that to us seems very, very weird. Now, what's so interesting about this is that it was the lowest 
servant in the household that was assigned this duty. This was the worst task you could have. Nobody wanted to wash feet. Like it was a bad sign if you were the one that was told to go do this. I, this week I kept thinking, I'm like, Lord, you know, what, what would be something that's like comparable in, in Canada? What would be a similar thing to express like what an ugly and dirty and kind of disrespectful job this was to do? And, and then like to have the son of God be the one who takes on this low position and he's washing your feet. That's scandalous. How can I communicate it? And I came up with one example, and I don't really know how good it is. Imagine that you get a knock on your door, and you open it, and it's the Queen of England. Now, I don't know why the Queen of England is in Airdrie, but let's say she is. And she says, hey, I really need to use your bathroom. I mean, like, I gotta go, okay? And you're like, well, yes, your majesty, please come on in. And so she goes into your bathroom. She's in there a while. And she comes back out and she's like, okay, I won't do the British accent. I almost did. Um, she's like, you know, while I was in there, I noticed your toilet was really dirty. So I found a brush and some spray and a sponge and I just cleaned it up real nice for you. That thing is sparkling. Tell your husband to focus a little more next time, okay? <laughs> you would be mortified. You'd be like, no, you're magic. Please, no, you should not. I'm, no, I'm so sorry. I can't. That's a fraction of what the disciples were feeling in this moment. This is why in John chapter number 13, as Jesus begins to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter speaks up and he says, no, you will never wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. Like this was like the idea that God in the flesh would kneel down and, and rub the dirt from between your stinky little toes is just so hard for our minds to comprehend. This was scandalous and difficult and awful even for the disciples to allow themselves to experience. As Jesus washes their feet, we read here in verse number 10, scripture says, he, he tells the disciples, you disciples are clean. Just wash your feet. You're clean. But not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is, that's what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. He knew who it was out of the 12 that was going to betray him. Now, I want you to understand the import of what this verse is telling us. Jesus knew that Judas had already betrayed him. The plan had already been made with the Roman authorities. He was just waiting for the right moment to go get him and say, okay, here he is, come, come arrest him. Jesus knew that Judas had already betrayed him and yet, Jesus washed his feet anyway. Can you imagine what must have been going through Christ's mind as he got to Judas? And he picked up the feet of the one who was going to cause his death before the next day was finished. And he washed his feet. Do you think he did it like, this stupid guy, wait till you get to eternity, buddy. <laughs> no, my guess is he did it lovingly. He probably didn't treat Judas any differently than he treated Peter or James. What do you think was going through Judas's mind? Knowing what he had already set in motion and, and understanding that like tonight was probably the night. What must he have been thinking and feeling when the one that he was going to betray knelt down in front of him and served him with this act of kindness? Like it's just hard to even comprehend what's going on. You know, when somebody treats me badly, when they take advantage of me, 
my first reaction is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, baby. Let's go Old Testament here, okay? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's the way it works. That's what you have earned. That's what you have brought upon yourself. And by the way, if you hurt me at a level four, I'm going to hurt you at a level five just so you know not to play, okay? Like, this is, this is the, the, the natural self coming out of people like me and maybe even people like you. And yet Jesus didn't respond to Judas this way. Instead, he served him. He put himself lower than the lowest guy that ever lived. And he served him in this unbelievable, very wild way. I would hate him. I would resent him. I would hurt him. I'm certainly not going to love him. Who treats their enemies like that? Jesus does. So he goes on after he's you know, the, the scripture singles out the fact that he's washed the feet of the betrayer here in verses 12 and 16. The scripture tells us, after washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again. He sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Now, we don't interpret this to be like super literal. It's not just that Jesus wants us to wash. I mean, you could wash one another's feet. We're not going to have a foot washing ceremony today. Don't freak out. I'm not calling anybody up on stage. The idea here is that we would serve one another. We would take on the place of a servant. We would do whatever is necessary to honor other people. Okay. All right. He says, I've set you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. So what happens at this point is most Christians will say, ah, I get it. I get it. I see what Jesus is doing here. I see the point. We're supposed to serve other people even when it's unglamorous right? Like that's, that's his point. So like take on the lowliest job of the lowliest servant and, and be willing to do the job that nobody else wants to do. And even when you don't get any credit, I mean, that's what Jesus did. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Yes. And because if you're really tracking here, that's only part of the story. See, Jesus didn't just wash Bartholomew's feet. He washed the betrayer's feet. And so when he says, do you understand what I've just done here? And he says, I'm giving you an example to follow. I'm giving you a new way of living from this day forward. He's not merely saying serve other people when it's unglamorous. He's saying love other people even when they don't deserve it. He's saying forgive people that you really have no business forgiving. Treat them the way that you wish they would have treated you. He isn't calling us to just serve others. He's calling us to love them and forgive them regardless of whether or not they deserve it. See, this is an essential part of following Christ. This is the heart of our faith that we have been forgiven and so we extend forgiveness even to people that are hard to love, even to people that are unlike us, even to people that won't appreciate the gift of love and forgiveness that we're giving them. We might summarize it like this. Faith isn't measured by your love for Jesus. Faith is measured by your love for Judas. Oh boy, it's easy to talk about how much you love Jesus because Jesus is lovable. He's lovely and he's loving in return. But what about Judas? How do we feel about him? Well, he's not very lovely. 
He's not very lovable. And the Judases in our lives don't love us back. This is why Jesus says, like, everybody loves the people who love them, but a mark of my followers is that you're going to love your enemies. You're going to pray for those who despise you. You're going to do good when people give you wrong. This is an essential part of following Jesus. I don't know who your Judas is, but I do know this. Whoever it might be, Jesus commands us to love them, to serve them, and to forgive them. Whoever the Judas might be in your life, your ex who cheated on you, love her. I know she didn't love you. Love her anyway. Your dad who neglected you, wash his feet. No, no, you don't understand, Dan. My dad abandoned me. He withheld affection from me. He was an awful dad. He hurt me. He wound- I get it. He doesn't deserve it. That's kind of the point of grace. This is what Jesus is illustrating. He's not just washing the feet of the people who've earned it. He's washing the, pe- the feet of the people who did not earn it. You have a coworker who lied about you? Speak well about them. Again, I know this is hard. This is what I told you. This is foundational. It's essential, but it's not easy. And yet, Jesus promises in verse number 17, this is how he concludes this interaction, this foot-washing episode here. He says, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. It is hard, but it can be done. And if it's done, there is a blessing on the other side. There is freedom that comes. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about how, like, how practically do I forgive. I've got five minutes left in the message. We're going to talk practically about how I forgive. But with so little time, I can't really tell you everything I want to tell you about that. So let me remind you that exactly one year ago, we did a six- or eight-week series called Don't Drink the Poison. You remember that? It was one of the first series we ever did in this building. And the whole point was like, how do I deal with offense? How do I forgive people that, you know, don't deserve it? And I want to forgive, but I don't know how. So like, go back into the podcast archives, go on YouTube, connect Calgary, just search for us. You'll find eight hours, no, not quite, four hours worth of teaching from me on that particular subject. That'll give you some more handles on how to do it. Now, one more thing I want to point out to you is that we notice here in John chapter number 13 that Judas wasn't the only Judas at the Last Supper. He wasn't the only Judas there. Now, what I mean by that is um, in just a a few moments after uh, verse number 17 that we just read, Judas is going to like flee. He's going to run away from the group. He's going to go find the Roman guards, and he's going to end up betraying Jesus later in the night. But hear me now. By the time Jesus is nailed to the cross on the hill called Golgotha, every one of the other disciples have also fled from Jesus in fear. So you understand that it wasn't just one guy in the room who proved himself unworthy of Jesus' love. There were a dozen guys in the room that showed that they didn't really deserve the love that he had given them. This is really important because it can be so easy for us to sit here with hindsight and to be like, wow, I'm not Judas. I would never be that guy. What a terrible dirtbag. Like, man, he's awful. Gosh, here's the truth. We're all Judas to some degree or another. Listen, I'm not telling you you're an awful person. And frankly, I'm probably a bigger Judas than you are, okay? I'm the pastor and I got to tell you, there have been some ways and some times in which I have betrayed my Lord. There have been some things that I've done, mostly in the past, but some more recent. Like, oh boy, I'm not really much different from these guys who got it so wrong. 
We're all betrayers. We're all sinners. We're all undeserving. And so as I've told you so many times, when we're reading the Bible, we have this tendency to want to jump into the story and say like, who's the hero? Who's the good guy? That's me. And I keep telling you the way you're really supposed to read the Bible is to find the villain, find the bad guy, find the weak one, find the one who got it wrong. And that's you, the one who saves and rescues and delivers, the champion, the one who comes to the aid of the one who is suffering or dying or left out. That's Jesus. That's the right way to read the Bible. And so when we read this story, yes, you want to think about your Judas. And yes, you need to follow the example of Christ. But listen to me now. You're not merely following the example of your Savior. You are doing for others what has been done for you. Seeing ourselves in Judas is the only way to love like Jesus. Unless and until you see yourself as the one who needs to be forgiven, you won't be able to truly forgive other people. You cannot give what you have not received. If you have not received forgiveness, then you're going to have a lot of trouble extending it to other people. It's only when I realize how undeserving of Christ's love that I am that I can turn around and give that same love and grace to other people who don't deserve it. Luke chapter number seven, verse 47, Jesus said this, those who are forgiven much, love much. So please understand, you're not going to be able to forgive people until you have been forgiven, until you have received forgiveness. And that's because forgiveness is a work of the spirit and not a work of self. I'm not pointing to Jesus and saying, now go follow your Savior's example. Work really hard. Try. You can do it. Just stay at it. You'll get there one day, right? Like, that's not what Christ calls us to. If I, if I put a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger up here on the screen, and he was in his little mankini, and he was like oiled up, and he was like this, and I'm like, that could be you. Follow his example. You, you would say, okay, maybe somebody can do that, but like not the average person. And if I just point to Jesus and I say, well, be like Jesus, like maybe there are some people that might be able to do it, but not the average person. So instead, we don't forgive as an act of self. We forgive as an act of spirit. We let the Holy Spirit bring forgiveness into our soul so that we have a well to draw from and extend forgiveness and love towards the people that are around us. If your well is empty, you won't have any forgiveness to draw out and give to mom or dad or your ex-girlfriend or your boss or whoever it might be. It's those who are forgiven much that love much. So what I want to do is I want to end the message this morning with just three short questions real fast, okay? And I want you to answer these in your own heart. Not going to turn to your neighbor, not going to share them out loud. This is just between you and God. So there's really no harm in actually doing this. The first question is this, who is God calling you to love or forgive? My guess is if you really just spend a moment, there will be somebody that comes to mind. I have somebody in mind. Somebody that may not deserve it. Somebody that may have wronged you. Somebody that you are tied to in an unhealthy way and God wants to set you free. But he won't be able to set you free until you acknowledge, until you confess, until you admit what's really going on in that heart of yours. Who is it that God is calling you to forgive or to love? Second question is, it's not really a question, <laughs> it's a step. Before we get to, all right, so what do I do about that person? How do I forgive them? The key step is number two, remind yourself of all that God has forgiven you of. Like we've gotten away in our world today from daily confession of sin. You know, it's like when we get saved, God forgives all of our sins, past, 
present, and future. You realize that, right? Like literally, one prayer covers them all. And yet the Bible calls us to daily confess our sins. Why? Because we need to be reminded of just what we've been forgiven of. It's a a huge, ridiculous amount. And so as we become more aware of what God has done for us, it becomes a little easier to extend that to other people. Most Christians will get this wrong because they'll go straight from one to three. And they'll skip number two. And number two is the key. That's the summer essential. (laughs) And then thirdly, just ask the Holy Spirit every day, just consistently, every day. God, grant them what you've given to me. I'm not asking you to give them anything that you haven't given me. And I realize it's hypocritical to ask you to give me what I won't give to somebody else. (laughs) So we've all got these Judases, Judases in our life. We've all got them. Jesus had them. And our Judases are probably not going to be on the same level as the one that Jesus dealt with. And yet the way that Christ dealt with this man becomes the template. It becomes the pattern. It becomes the path for you and I to deal with these people in our lives. I say all of it to say this, not to surface a bunch of ugly memories, not to remind you that you've been trying for two decades to be free of that relationship and you still haven't let it go. I'm not trying to do any of that. What I'm trying to communicate to you is God really does want you to be free. You absolutely can be, but it's only going to happen when you experience his love and forgiveness and then turn around and extend it to other people.